0: Hello and welcome back to 10 Questions. Today's guest is the first politician I interviewed when I was a journalist way back in 1993 and that's the former leader of the Australian Democrats, Cheryl Kerno. Cheryl was the Democrat Senator for Queensland from 1990 to 1997 and then left the Democrats to join the ALP where she ran for and won the seat of Dixon in the House of Representatives. It was a seat she held until 2001. I always liked Cheryl's easygoing manner, and it was during her time as leader of the Democrats that you always felt, given the right conditions, they might just challenge the major parties, but that dream never came true. In this interview, Cheryl discusses the highs and lows of being the third-party option, the pressure politics puts on a marriage, and how her nine-year-old grandson requested to go to question time in Canberra for his birthday. For those subscribed to 10 Questions with Adam Zwa on Patreon, Cheryl lists the three most inspiring politicians she's ever met, and why. Just a sidebar, the week we recorded this interview was the week Paul Keating addressed the National Press Club and discussed Australia's relationship with China. And in doing so, he ruffled many feathers in the way that Keating fans love. So when Cheryl talks about watching Keating this week, that's what she's referring to. But as usual, I started off by asking Cheryl... When she was most happy.
1: Do you know what? I'm happy every day when I walk on the beach here because I've been either coming to this part of the country, which is Port Stephens, and walking on the same present of sand for about 65 years. And it still lifts my soul. But I was thinking, when was I most happy? And I think (laughs) pre-politics. When times were more innocent. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think at a personal level when uh, I'd only been married to Gavin, a, well, not all that long, a couple of years, and we had Shan our, our daughter. And I don't know, you just get that first sense of being a little unit together mm. in the world. And I look back on that and think, yeah, I was happy then, really happy then.
0: Yeah, That's lovely. Where, where, where were you in the world? Then? In where, like, Brisbane. Brisbane, right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I remember we went together for uh, frequent weekends and holidays down at Byron Bay in this lovely little, oh, kind of a village where there were wooden cabins, and it just life just seemed simple by comparison. Retrospectively, seems lovely, simple, and happy, and lovely.
0: And how long after that did you go into politics?
1: Uh, So Sean was only seven when I did it. Yeah, and that was hard because I'd have to being a mum and a bit of a soppy one, I have to sneak out on Monday mornings at five AM to get it get the plane to go to Canberra and not get back till Friday or late Oh Thursday my god. Night. But and that was more than twenty-six weeks of the year. So yeah. that was hard, but I tell you, we've made up
0: for it since then. The 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 time commitments are extraordinary, aren't they?
1: I think it's actually I think it's a bit of a mad way to run a country. There has to be there has to be a, a less frenetic, uh, more sensible way. I mean, when you're a member in the House of Reps, you just have to spend every night out at some community group or you're not doing your job. Mm. Every, every Saturday, this is pre-COVID, you know, there'd be a fete or some kind of event and you had to be out all the time. And if if you could take your family with you, I suppose that's, uh, that's some way of spending time, but they didn't always want to come every weekend to a fete or something. Anyway, it's a very punishing life, and I think it's it, we really need to rethink it.
0: I agree. Um, question two is: Who would you like to apologise to, and why?
1: Well, top of my mind at the moment is Greta Thunberg, her generation, and my grandchildren, for the failure of Australia, particularly, and others in the world, to actually take the the threatened existence of the planet seriously. Yeah. I, just, I cannot believe that we've put politics and the subsidizing of fossil fuels ahead of the future of the planet for them so that mm. they don't they don't have to live in a plus five degrees. I, I can't believe it. I want to apologize profusely just as the guy who was running the the uh, the whole COP, cop did. I understand exactly how he feels. I'm apologizing for us. We're being vandals. We're being selfish, self-interested vandals. I just I can't get my head around it that you could fail. So I have to apologize. No wonder they feel, no wonder they feel so utterly disillusioned by it all.
0: In times like that, do you wish you were still in politics so you could perhaps just do something about it?
1: Look, it was great having a voice. Mm. But a voice without delivering action is, I mean, that's what all the Liberal moderates are doing, saying, oh, it should have been, we should have a more ambitious target. But they're Mm -hmm. in a government that stops them from doing it. So the the voice isn't enough anymore. Um, I don't know, but it does, but it is, I did always feel like the first day I walked into the Senate and had a seat and a little glass plaque with my name on it, I did feel, wow, this is a place where a voice matters. Mm. And it did, and it did on some things. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what is your greatest regret?
1: Probably not doing better at making a marriage stick, not stepping in early enough when the warning signs were there and seeking to, um, you know, do something about it. Because I think when you get in your 70s and uh, the, 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 just say the warmth of long-term companionship isn't there. It's that's that's a bit of a regret. Mm. I'm single.
0: Uh, you mentioned before with the with the the time of commitments. Is that does that I mean how do political marriages yeah. last in those situations? Oh well
1: they a lot of them don't do they I mean you've got to have somebody who really really understands and shares the journey um mm. with you all the time. Um, and some people do choose a kindred spirit who completely understands. I mean, Tanya Pudasek's one that comes to mind. Mm. But um, honestly, you're made to feel, well, I know my ex-husband was always used to get like just as a ferrier of messages to me. They would say, will you tell Cheryl X? And, you know, after 10 years of that, you can get fed up, can't you? Yeah. Because, you know, just as a person in their own right what did he do he was a teacher
0: teacher all right so people would what stop him in the street or yeah
1: and say tell Cheryl yeah oh lord yeah. or wherever he went or and also you could be out um having a coffee or a meal somewhere and people being people they would stare and mm. whisper behind their hands and oh sometimes it got to you yeah I mean by I chased some women around a clothes rack once because they were pretending to look at clothes and watching what I was doing, and I just went around the other side and said, "If you've got something to ask me, ask me now. Just don't hide." <laughs> so they ran for their lives. <laughs> well,
0: you know, I mean, in the nineties, I don't think there was anyone in Australia who didn't know who you were. You know, you, it was you were very visible. And how what was that like? I mean, and that
1: creeps up on you too. That right. just creeps up on you. I look at people now who are becoming. Just becoming better known, and I think if it, most of the politicians think it's fantastic, but they don't realise where it's going to lead because you just don't have much of a sanctuary left, even in your own home. Mm-hmm. Um, it just happens. I it's not something I sought. How I became aware of it, I was walking on one of those travelators at Sydney at Sydney Airport, and I was just walking along, thinking, and then I suddenly saw these men going in the opposite direction stopping and staring at me. And I thought, are they staring at me? I think they might be. So when it kept happening, I thought, oh, my goodness, something's changed. Because yeah.
0: Yeah. you've got, I mean, you know, the Democrats kept on get, getting their vote up every election and it was like there was a time there. But, you know,
1: we never got above 14%, and that's the same. The Greens can't get above 12%. we are in this. We might be changing, but we've been stuck in this kind of, two-major-party mythology for so long now. Mm. Um, Even though the 2 major parties' votes are only in the 30s, Mm. there is no other third homogenous group that's 30 as well. It's all fractured into bits and pieces of the right in particular.
0: How many did you have in the Senate? Did you have any in the House of Reps?
1: We never got one. We came
0: so close. Adair
1: Ferguson, who was a very famous rower in Ryan. That's right. She got uh, 24% of the vote and with the right fall of preferences, she would have
0: got there but she didn't.
1: And then Janine.
0: The Janine that Cheryl's about to refer to is the former leader of the Australian Democrats, Janine Haynes.
1: Janine ran for the um, lower house seat of uh, Kingston in um, South Australia. And she made the mistake, or we Democrats made the mistake of choosing a seat that liberal and labour would fight over uh, rather than what they wouldn't so we she came close but not close enough
0: still such a it was such a huge uh, it was such a huge part of everyone's lives that the democrats are so heartbreaking when when it,
1: they're still around are they still around they've re, they've reformed reinvigorated and gee, they've got some good people i'm still talking to them but some good people and they will be running some senate candidates uh, in the next election. Fantastic, fantastic. Yeah, I've got to get that word out. Actually,
0: <laughs> I guess this leads into it: is uh, what will you still need to do to feel you've lived a satisfactory life?
1: Something. I don't know what it is. I'm waiting for. It. I'm waiting for it. So I'm waiting for it to appear because I. I feel like I'm an unfinished canvas at one level, but I don't know what it is that I that I want to do at the next. Mm.
2: Um,
1: I'm really enjoying my grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Um, and deeply involved with um, their growth and their schooling, I was going to my grandson's school to help with reading, and I was looking at teaching ethics. And then COVID came. Oh. Um, uh, but that's not enough. My my identity is not as a doting grandparent. I just don't know what it is, though. I, I don't want to be a. I don't want to be the mayor of the local area. <laughs> I just. I don't know what it is. But I don't I don't people say oh but you've done so much in your life but you know it doesn't feel like just quite enough. I just didn't finish it off quite enough. So
0: Yeah, you're right. I don't
1: know what it is, But I'm open. I'm still open to it. Whatever it is, if it if it presents itself, I'm open to it.
0: What did you do immediately after politics?
1: Wrote a book and went to the UK.
0: Ah, so you lived there for and
1: a while. Was, oh nearly nearly eight years. In London? I loved it. Yeah, in London. Oh, and Oxford. Oh. And Oxford. But I really loved it because um, they have seats along the Thames which will have a little plaque on them which says things like everyone needs a place to sit and think. Mm. I thought, think? They actually value thinking. And then you watch people right. hanging from the straps of the tube, reading, 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 and I think it's the cold climate, but they seem to be, and, and there's 65 million people, but. I don't know. They just seem to be tuned in to the the intellectual, public intellectual side of politics as well, mm. and the the um, diversity of media as it was then. Uh, I just found it all very um, intellectually invigorating, and I also liked the seasons. And I was able to come and go mm. uh, when my dad was sick. I had to. I came and went quite a few times, so I was able to dip into Australia and. Uh, they swim in winter. I was so acclimatised to, oh, wow. to the climate of UK. I didn't find the ocean cold in winter in Australia. My parents were surprised. Um, so it was a really good sabbatical and I did some work for, um, I think, Tank, which was looking at um, promoting the concept of um, taking care of self-harm with respect oh. to drugs rather than the, the punishment. So I, I, I did some work with the United Nations Committee uh, with them. And then I was poached to go and teach at the School for Social Entrepreneurs, which, again, was very, um, it was emerging. It's, it's stronger in the world now, but it's a, it's an alternative. It's business with a social purpose. So mm. I felt as though my policy interests and my teaching experience came together in that. And uh, I started off at the School for Social Entrepreneurs in London and then I went to Oxford to oh, the... Wow where they um, had a centre for, what were we called? The um, Centre for Social Entrepreneurship. But we it's a bit changed since then. But anyway, it was fabulous. Fabulous, fabulous experience. Loved every minute of it. And then uh, when I decided, like, you get up one day and you think, no, I can't get on that tube anymore. I'm okay. not going to be, I can't do it anymore. <laughs> it's, it's so funny. You're just, you're loving it and then one day it's too much. Yeah, I was yearning, yearning for the spaces, the open spaces, and the fewer people. You know, when you're walking down Oxford Street in London and it's twelve people abreast, you think that's a lot of people. Yeah, <laughs> very stressful. Australians just aren't. I don't know. We have a. Di- I think we have a different sense of space because of how we grow up with it all around us. So I just woke up one day and thought, mm. so then Peter Shergold. Um, headhunted me to come and work at the Centre for Social Impact, which was just starting. And I had about 10, 12 happy years there.
0: Oh, fantastic.
1: Was I was teaching all these inspiring young people who had a desire to be social change makers. So that was right, right up my alley.
0: I was going to ask that being in England, was it just nice to get out of the the fishbowl of what you're talking about before people yeah, looking absolutely. at
1: you? Absolutely. Except except when I was first there. I'd only been there two weeks. I was walking along near the Houses of Parliament, and um, this person screamed out, "Senator Kuno, Senator Kuno!" I thought, "Oh no!" it was a nice, friendly Uh person from um, (laughs) Rockhampton, and he just wanted to have a photo taken with me. Then I got on the tube. About the next day, I got on the tube, and um, I sensed—I was standing up, and I sensed these people sitting down, staring at me, and I just thought. Anyway, I eventually looked at the tag on their luggage, and they were Australians, yeah. and they were they were going home to um they were going to, we got talking, and they were going to Heathrow to actually go home. But and then it calmed down after that. You can't escape.
0: You can't escape. <laughs> I, I remember a friend of mine. He's an actor. He 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 fell asleep on the tube, and he woke up, and Ray Martin was sitting opposite him.
2: <laughs> Isn't that funny?
0: Cheers. Um, <laughs> In question five is who is the person who most influenced you and how?
1: Well, two, two teachers, really, both women and both when I was 14. One was my history teacher and one was my English, my teacher in English. And um, I didn't realise it at the time, but those are years when you, as an adolescent you're just starting to be exposed to a deeper history uh, understanding of history of the world mm-hmm. my english teacher um, was quite a philosophical person and she made us write really difficult essays for a 14 year old like all progress all progress is an illusion and i agonized over what oh, that wow. meant for so long i've never forgotten it but her influence, she was very gentle and wise and she would say things like, an intelligent person is never bored with her own company. You know, this is so many years ago that I still remember the things that she said. And she and my history teacher took me out of my regional New South Wales high school in my head. Mm. And I, I really think they taught me to think, to think, both A, to think, and B, to um, be engaged with the world. So for a 14-year-old in regional New South Wales, that was that's a pretty big influence, really.
0: Of course, because can you imagine the best and brightest female students w- would go into teaching in those days? Yes,
1: yeah, they did. They were really superb. Te- I had a superb public school education that's really I'm still uh, in touch with quite a few people that I went to school with. And you're always oblivious to your own, the way you are. But, you know, they always say, oh, we always knew you'd go into politics. And I think, really? really? (laughs) Interesting. Yeah, I gave a speech on racism. Um, I was asked to. It wasn't my choice. We had Kath Walker coming to school assembly.
0: Kath Walker was an Aboriginal political activist, poet and artist. She was also a member of the Australian Women's Army Service in the 1940s and was the first Aboriginal Australian to publish a book of verse. It was called We Are Going and it became a bestseller. She published two more books of poetry and alongside C.J. Dennis was, for a period, Australia's highest selling poet.
1: This is how I got thinking about politics really because our local member was Milton Morris who was a liberal and he was the minister for transport and he was our prefect's patron and he came up to me afterwards and he said that was a wonderful speech um you should think about going into politics and I went politics I don't know anything much about politics thinking it was much more complicated than it was and he said he only died a couple of years ago he was in his late 90s too and um Oh, you know, he would tell any journalist who would listen that it was the greatest regret that he never got me to join
0: the Liberal Party. Was he a a wet? Yeah.
1: I would say, Milton, you should know enough about what I say to know. I wouldn't have ever fitted in there. (laughs) He kept in touch with me all those years, you know.
0: That's lovely. In in those days, you you kind of had them. There was a place for those people in the Liberal Party.
1: And and a place for people being really good local members like that, I reckon.
0: What government was he?
1: Liberal state government.
0: Gotcha. And
1: he was the minister for um, transport for such a long time. He was just a model local member, truly. Just a wow. model. Mm. Yeah. There were so many of us at his funeral who went through school that, and he went to every school um, as the prefect's patrons of every school. But, um, yeah, we he people just remembered him so fondly, mm. which is not, usual for too many politicians no <laughs> and is there a
0: place for those kind of politicians anymore <sighs> well, C- can you do it now with social there media it is a place
1: and- but i don't think you can do it as mm. easily oh, i think there are some assiduous really well locally connected politicians out there these mm. days but i think it's much harder.
0: Mm. Much, yeah. much harder um when was the last time you cried and why
1: look i'm soppy i cry a lot i cry but if I were to narrow it down, I cried anything to do with vulnerable old people or vulnerable kids. Yeah, I just, I just, uh, something turns on in my heart about mistreatment of either of those. I, I found the, um, I cry a lot in movies, particularly you know when loved ones die. Mm. I've never been, I've never, I've always been, you know, I used to go. To, festivals when I was much younger and watched these really hard-nosed poverty in Brazil and all these really heart-rending things. But I would intellectualize it as something the system's got to fix. Mm. And I wouldn't cry as much then, but now, oh my gosh, it's hopeless. I just, I'm easily moved, easily, easily moved. Your
0: heart is open.
1: It is. Oh, yeah. it just you know, even at Bert Newton's funeral, just mm. watching his grand—that little grandchild that looks so much like him—deliver that little prayer. I mean, that, oh, that was just like keep yeah. those tears in. <laughs> of course. So I'm afraid I haven't become—I haven't become a hard-hearted, bitter and twisted. I don't think I have a uh, person from politics. I just see the humanity and, and the—I mean, age and kids. That's the common leveler for all of us, really. Mm. So seeing people mistreated at either of those times is—it's just too painful.
0: It really is. It really is.
1: Particularly when you see what, how some children just don't get loved, you know, and, mm. and all of the social implications that come from that. Yeah. Track, you know, and the fact that we don't fix up our aged care facilities properly, you know, that's. All that stuff that's in the news at the moment, oh, I find that heart-wrenching.
0: Do, do you think that the emotional impact of those things uh, is, is greater w- when you're not involved in politics anymore and, and your voice isn't as, isn't as loud?
1: Not necessarily. I see people there who are just as appalled, and moved yeah. by it. Yeah. But the justifications from the government, the calling of royal commissions, the cynicism of that, that gets in the way if you don't act on it. So mm. no, little, yeah, I'm on the fence on this one. 50, yeah. 50. I would feel better speaking, but unless I could hold the government to account to implement the recommendations of the Royal Commission, I'm just another voice. And I'm really sick and tired of us all speaking and nothing happening. I'm, I'm very, I'm very angry about that.
0: Mm, I feel the same. Uh, what's your current state of mind?
1: I'm mad as hell about those lying bastards in government.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's one thing. I can't watch too much of some of them. I have to mute it. Mm. But I, but I'm determined to be vigilant. I'm not opting out as a citizen. I'm, I'm remaining vigilant and trying to call out the lies. Mm. Um, interspersed with walks on the beach to get my sanity back, <laughs> get some sense of equilibrium yeah. back. And reading stories to my grandchildren. So I have to say I'm angry at the destruction of our democracy, Mm. but um, I can't, I was born with politics in my system. I can't help it. My grandfather was interested, not that I got, he died when I was 12, but he was a Labor Party organiser on the Mm coalfields in Hanover. And, um, he apparently was asked to be a candidate, but we didn't. He didn't take pursue it. So, but I never knew that much about that part of him. I just saw him with his utility with stuff in the utility truck that's stuck in the back of it from time to time. <laughs> um, and so, it's. I really believe there's a there's a kind of there's a bit of a genetic thing. My grandson, who's only nine, asked to go to Canberra for his birthday. And he sat through an entire question time with me. Oh and God. he asked me all about it. Thought, oh, my goodness. Wow. <laughs> every, second, every second generation. He takes, he takes a big interesting thing. He's always asking. I woke up to what he started asking me. He'd be sitting playing a screen under the news on that television. And he'd say, Nana, what does that mean? What does that breaking news mean? And he he's really interested in it. And I think, oh, my goodness. Oh my goodness
0: because you, you hear about that you kind of wonder what a path to politics is and you know you hear about Keating at a very early age you know pounding the pavement at bank, bankstown and wherever it was and you, yeah. you go, it never occurred to me I was just watching cricket so you know that's why that's why I didn't go into politics no. I,
1: I know I just don't know so there's a gene somewhere down our <laughs> down my mother's my mother's line somewhere anyway <laughs> there's people say I was um They, my uncles, who's now dead, say I was, I reminded him of my grandfather. But as I said, because he died when I was 12, I couldn't really, I couldn't, I didn't really spill. I knew him very much, very well.
0: Interesting. Yeah. But he lives inside
1: you. Yes, he does. I actually have very small ear canals, which we inherited from him too. (laughs) Which is good for listening, good for hearing round corners.
0: It's good for politics then.
1: It is. It is. It is. I could hear people just mm. from a distance when I wasn't supposed to.
0: Interesting. Anyway. Oh, that would have been good. <laughs> um, what do you consider your greatest achievement?
1: Well, there are bits and pieces, but I think the one that will be long-lasting is the working with the Keating government on proving by law that terra nullius, that this land wasn't occupied was a historical uh, inaccuracy and setting it right with um, native title legislation. That night in the parliament, like in the Senate after midnight and all the public galleries full of Indigenous Australians and others, but the Liberals having um, filibustered it as long as they could for well over a week and... Keating saying, "World well, State till Christmas and Beyond," and when it went through, honestly, it was just utterly exhilarating. And in its own way, even though it's had a couple of flaws in the in the original legislation, which even Paul Keating says have been worked, need to be worked on, it has it's taken that racist pillar out from under under um, the history of this country and. And the lovely thing is I just made so many um, wonderful friends, you know, the Marcia Langtons and the Noel Pearsons of the world. I just, I think that was it, yeah. I've done other things like carer's leave, which legitimised leave for working parents because you had to ring up, prior to that, you had to ring up and pretend you were sick yourself to take time off when your children or your elderly parents were sick. Yeah, so that's another one that has a different structural yeah. implication for people.
0: Um, with, with um, uh, is it, isn't it interesting when you're 16, you made that speech on racism, and then yes. it, it ends up later on being your greatest achievement. Well,
1: exact Well, I think I said something to the effect of, um, I, when I was 16, I never knew that I would be casting balance of power vote that would do this to australian history it was very i felt it very keenly it was wonderful great was sense it. of achievement mm-hmm.
0: who would you want on your side in a battle and why
1: again this is a kind of um it came to me this week uh, i was thinking about this came to me this week which is i want Paul keating on my side <laughs> we might be we might be in our 70s but i reckon we were a pretty good team when uh he would put up the ideas, the legislation, and we would say, good starting point. We think we can make it fairer. So just based on this, we're watching him with his, with his words. We'd win the mm-hmm. battle on the words. We wouldn't need to do anything else. But words, logic, sense of history, loyalty, um, I, think, I think he and I, would be a pretty
0: good combination still. Yeah. I can imagine him then. Say, but- Cheryl? Cheryl
1: <laughs> <laughs> I've got a quote here <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah.
0: i um i I shared a dressing as a, in my uh, acting days I shared a dressing room with Jerry Connolly who oh. for because he's kind of he's a little bit on the spectrum and he would like spend a whole week as Keating, and then he'd spend oh. the next week as Beasley.
1: Queen. Oh, well,
0: crazy. oh yeah, it was you know mm. or Robert Ray, he could do them all all you know for yeah. that kind of dream team 90s. Yeah, front well,
1: that bench. was a amazing time. Yeah. In our politics, it was. It really was. That, that yes. was a fabulous time. But Keating's unique and obviously he had that unbelievable intelligence which has enabled mm. him to grasp the history of the world the way he has and our place in it. He, I found, he, I was at the Redfern speech.
0: Oh, um, Wow.
1: Oh, I had no idea it was going to turn out like that. I was just sitting in the front row um, and there was noise everywhere. There were kids, Aboriginal kids walking around everywhere. There was noise everywhere. Then suddenly I heard him say, we took the land. And smashed the traditional way of life. We brought the diseases and the alcohol. We committed the murders. We took the children from their mothers. We practiced discrimination and exclusion. It was our ignorance ignorance, and our prejudice and our failure to imagine that these things could be done to us. And the whole place went, hang on, something's happening here. And then we were hanging on every word and I knew from my, even though Don Watson would have had a hand in writing that speech and did have a hand in it, I knew from my interactions with him over the whole Native title debate that this was a genuine passion. This was Mm. not just a political, um, what would you say, wooden horse for him to pretend he cared about Mm. and let it be defeated. Um, I just knew this was a real passion, which is why I found what he said inspirational on that day. I also found his um, challenging of us as a nation to think about our place in Asia. I found that motivating Mm. um, and thought-provoking, and I thought his leadership on the Republic was pretty damn good too. Mm. And I can't point to anything from... Most prime ministers since um, that combined this incredibly inspirational, coherent view of the world and our place in it. Um, I was there at a good time. I was there at a good time.
0: Yeah, it was a, it was what kind of got me interested in politics. You know that you know that early '90s time, and, and of course, Keating. And
1: we don't have it. We don't have it now at the moment.
0: No, no, there's no one who, look, I, you know, I I really like Julia Gillard.
1: I did too, but our policy, our system couldn't would, our system was exploded to make it nearly impossible for her to mm. continue. Mm.
0: Um but yeah I that would be that would be fantastic and it's the ideal answer. Uh you and Paul Keating. Um and lastly what <laughs> was-
1: <laughs> I dunno I mean I saw him at Keating the musical once um uh he was still very warm and calls you love, you know. Uh, yeah. But uh, I'd probably have to ask him if he'd come into battle with me. But um, (laughs) I'm sure he would.
0: He's rolled (laughs) up his sleeves in the last few days.
1: And I'm still on his side on most of those issues. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. So am I. Uh, Question 10, what would you like your last words to be?
1: I found this really hard. I think I'd like to say to people, go gently in this world.
0: Mm, That's nice.
1: Go gently in this world. I mean... know not going to be trite and say I did it my way because we all do it our way don't Mm. we? Some people succeed having a much more noticeable my way than others but I don't know in the end in the end it's about humanity and our impact on others I think. Yeah. So I think that's I think that's what I'd like to say.
0: Mm. That's lovely. Thank you so much for tuning in to 10 Questions. If you'd like to subscribe to us on Patreon, we're at 10 Questions with Adam Zwa, and that's where you can get the bonus content on every interview. Until next time, thanks for joining us.